As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, friends. Have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach And within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A where you all ask the questions and we answer fearlessly, joyfully, and always together. Me and KB, my fearless partner in crime. Welcome. Hey, Laura. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Oh, I like that new entry. I know. I'll have to repeat right, that. I'm going to kick this <laughs> off here. <laughs> this is from our friend, Monica. She's one of our uh, European lit instructors. And so she says, I have a um, question for Wednesday Q&A. I'm actually quite frustrated. Every time I'm making progress with handstand practice, I'm getting problems and pain in my body that actually stops me from practicing. It started with tennis elbow, um, where I eventually, after two years of physiotherapy and various other treatments, had to have a surgery. This was my right elbow. Now I have tremendous pain on my right, excuse me, on my left side, upper back, shoulder, arm, and hand. Sometimes during the night, I get numbness in my little finger. This seems to be in a constant tension and in spasms, twitching. The muscles do. The muscles seem to be in constant tension and twitching. Um, I love doing handstands and don't want to stop practicing. Is there any advice what I might be doing wrong? And then she says, thank you so much for your amazing work and everything you offer. Lit has changed so much in my life already and the journey is not over. We love Monica. Love that. Uh, So Monica, 
this could be anyone who's experiencing these type of things. First of all, you had surgery in your opposite elbow. That tells us something, but not necessarily the whole picture. Anytime one side was burdened, the other side might have been picking up more load. Um, the pinky nerve stuff tells us there's something getting compressed. And it could be like when you're sleeping, your head is compressing. That's, But, it, you know, not everybody has that. So I, without looking at you, am going to venture to say you need more scapula stability, possibly shoulder mobility, um, because if you're lacking some adequate shoulder mobility, uh, you might be getting more compression in your neck, which doesn't feel good in the neck, shoulder, upper back. And not rush the process. The thing about handstand, it's really, really fun when you can do it and it feels good. <laughs> Duh. No, but the point is that, that there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. And what I think is perhaps the way to reframe it is that have it be a joyful thing as you progress into it. So I would dial back and really work on the fundamentals of plank, quadruped, dynamic uh, stability in planks. That could be plank, lower the knees, bend your elbows and straighten, keeping the scapula, like little overalls that are keeping the humeral heads in place and training that dynamic stability that you're going to need as part of the entry into handstand. Um, I would work a lot on making sure your shoulder flexion feels really great and there's no forward movement of the entire thorax with that shoulder flexion, uh, thinking more of space in the sides of the body. So I think it's, as always, it's multifactorial, but I, I think the pose needs to be less of the um, positioning and goal and more of the inquiry of where is there imbalance that is show that, and that's what I love about handstand. It shows the imbalances, and um, because those other things are are going to, they're going to speak a lot louder than any joy you might have momentarily in handstand. So the discomfort in your neck, the numbness and tingling, that is going to override any of the fun that you're going to have. So I would just dial back and really, really work. Then, of course. And I'll let KB say her part, but what are you doing the rest of the day? How are you sitting? How are you standing? How are you holding yourself? How are you managing stress? How is, what's your posture? Um, how are you moving? Are you moving in different ways? Are you moving in a variety of positions? Are you kind of static? What are your shoulders doing? What are you holding? There's so much to examine, but that's the beginning of the unpacking. No, I, I, first of all, I love that you talked about the journey of handstand and to slow it down because, uh, you know, my handstand journey was such that, um, you know, it, it was part of a reason why I kind of quit yoga for a while because I got frustrated and so I'm feeling your pain right now. And this was, it was my issue. You know, I was getting frustrated because I was competing with myself. I wanted to get this and I, and it, I lost the joy of yoga because I was so focused on the handstand. And when I, so I took about a four month step away 
and I found playfulness. And so I would do it with my kids. I would do it in the grass. I would do it while I was teaching track when I got a whole bunch of people doing it. And so I found the joy again. What I would look at as well, I love how Laura brought in the um, scapula, you know, looking at what you're doing when you're not doing your handstands. Look at maybe why, you know, what's not working from below even, you know, are you not utilizing your psoas? Are you not getting that lift, that core lift? Are you really, are you wobbly in the core? Core meaning, when I say core, I'm meaning really below the shoulder. So abdominals, pelvis not using that stability of your glutes. So then you go on the hands and the arm and it's like, whoa, whoa, you know, you're like this wobble. I see it all the time. People look like a, you know, like a, a, a wet noodle. noodle. <laughs> <laughs> and if, and that's a lot. And so what's going to take the brunt, it's going to be your upper extremities because they are now the weight bearing structure. And so it's interesting that you had the tennis elbow, which may have been from tennis. I mean, I don't know what it was from, but on one side, then you had surgery. So who knows what you patterns you have from that. And then now it's the other side, but both have been upper extremity issues. Maybe these guys are getting the butt, you know, the crap kicked out of them because the lower half isn't strong. I found the game changer for me with my handstand was not, I'm super strong in my arms. I've always been able to wait, you know, strong triceps. I can do the push-ups, all that stuff but I couldn't hold a handstand because my lower half, it wasn't until I tapped in to my psoas. Laura, you taught me that. Um, I've made classes based on Laura's theory behind using the psoas. There's a lot of great classes on Lit Daily that focus supple psoas, um, you know, push to lift, all these ways of trying to get that lift of the core and the lower half, which will give your arms a stable structure to hold overhead. And so breaking it down into steps can help also. So find the joy, let go of the, the goal of handstand and look into your lower half. I wouldn't be surprised if, and oh, always, always, always video yourself. That will tell you a lot of what's going on. You might realize that, like you said, Laura, you're, you know, kind of going into the shoulders and you're not really getting the pelvis up, or you might see that wet noodle effect that's going on. And trust me with a wet noodle core, where you will hurt yourself is the shoulder, wrist, and hand, uh, shoulder, elbow, and wrist and hand, not the, you know, not the back, not the pelvis. They will not be the first to go. It'll be those weight bearing structures. That's all I have to say on that. It just reminded me, I can't even remember what this what this is, but when you like pluck something, it's like and the vibration where you pluck it is not, it's down like, bang. what is that thing I'm thinking of? Yeah. yeah. It's like, a, anyway, that just reminded me. It's like, like not going to, yeah. huh? <laughs> like <No>. a harp? <laughs> yeah. No, it's an actual, uh, it was like some kind of toy or something. Anyway, yeah. the point is like often where that first like pluck is, is not... If, if it's strong, it'll stay there. But if it's not, it's like that, like you said, that noodle effect. And I love that you brought in the lower half because, again, once you're, once you're off your feet, you, it's absolutely incumbent for you to pull everything more into center so that you aren't overloading the shoulders, the wrist, and, and whatnot. And it can be really challenging to be patient, but I also like to think of it as being really curious and playful. I remember when I was – getting back into doing a pull-up, which I hadn't done since high school. I mean, 
And it was so humbling. And instead of being like, wow, I really suck. I thought I was strong. It was like, I haven't done this in a while. I'm going to have to just go through the building blocks, which is like, get one of those big rubber bands to support you. And then and then do scapula just kind of um, slides with the elbows straight. And it was really fun. So I think reframe it and have fun with it that you're going to craft a better and more, you know, economically and biomechanically sustainable. Um, when I mean economically, I mean energy uh, path for you. And yeah, the handstand is just, you know, a part of it, but it's abs- it's not the most important. Okay, great question. Liz Gee, uh, Liz G. Gee, any tips for healing shin splints? This is such a relevant question because many of us are now in, in summer, um, going out and, you know, getting into activities perhaps that we might not have done as much in the winter. It just feels sometimes spring, summer just feels like that's when you want to pick up going outdoors, hiking, running, those type of things. You want to speak to this, uh, Shin Splints? Yeah. I know that you oh. talk a lot about, you have classes with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, this is the story of my life. Shin Splints are what got me into physical therapy. You might not know that. I don't but, think I knew that. No. Yeah. I, um, I ran track in high school and college. And, um, because I kept hurting my shins in high school, I was not interested in running in college, but my, my high school coach called the school I went to and said, Hey, there's a girl there. She has these times in the hundred, the 200, the 400, you might want to invite her to walk on. This was at Indiana university where I went. And so I get the phone call, you know, in the first few weeks of school and my ego, Oh, you want me, my ego. I was like, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, who cares that I'd literally like missed, you know, I mean, I was wearing an air cast around because I was just crushing my shins. Long story short, I go to Indiana, great track program. I get right away, get injured. I start seeing a ton of athletic trainers, orthopedists, and physical therapists. And that's actually why I was a business major and I was taking statistics and economics and I was like hating life. And then I was seeing all these PTs and I was like, this is really cool. And that's what got me into PT. And so my essay that I wrote for my PT and, you know, entrance exam, you know, to get into school was talking about the pain of a shin splint. I mean, it felt like, I mean, I got stress, fra- I mean, I got stre- you know, micro fractures in my shins it felt like stabbing pain. So it's not a joke. And what I have learned, I wish I knew then what I know now, because again, they were checking me for compartment syndrome. I had orthotics. I, um, it really wasn't till I got in out of track into PT school and started talking with a bit more, I don't want to call them educated, but just different people that they started looking at you know, what type of shoes, what, you know, was I wearing? How was I running? You know, I was a sprinter. If you look at me, if you guys know me, you wouldn't look at me and think that's a sprinter. I look, I'm long, I'm lanky. I looked really funny because I was literally a foot taller than most of the sprinters. So I'm not built to sprint. So I was sprinting with a longer stride. So the heel strike, there's just a lot of force going through my shin bone, which can cause Shin splints are usually either a muscle tendon, tendinopathy of sorts, posterior tibialis, anterior tibialis, either can be involved. A lot of times it's an inflammation of what's called the periosteum, which is the, the, the 
soft tissue that surrounds the bone becomes inflamed and can even like pull away. It's like a fascial structure that can pull away from the bone and it hurts. You can run your finger up the shin and it feels like little beads of, you know, like, and they are pained like little peas. Um, so what do you do about it? You can stretch, you can rest, you can get orthotics. They do help. You can change your shoes. That, that does help. But I think you ultimately really need to look at how are you running? You know, what is your strike pattern? What is occurring down below at the foot? What's occurring up above? You know, why is the shin taking the force? Um, I have helped a lot of people with theirs simply by shortening the stride length. So they're better able to get on the midfoot to even forefoot when they, especially if they're going fast, if they're sprinting. I'm assuming you're a runner because most people are in some sort of running activity, whether it is soccer, whether it is jogging, whether it is uh, hiking, you know, but really looking to see where are you striking? Where is the, you know, force going? What are you underutilizing? You know, so I, when I would look at people, I would take slow motion video of them from behind, from the side, from the front on a, on a treadmill. Treadmill is not ideal, but it's easier to um, analyze. I've seen shortening the stance helps a lot. Getting up on the toes helps a lot. Um, really looking to see that you have good hip, ankle, core strength. So you aren't, you know, aggravating those structures. What's not working. So for me, now I don't use orthotics. I just shorten my stride length. I've increased my tempo. I try to focus on using my glutes a bit more um, and I no longer get them. And then training, 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 training. If you, you need to build up slowly. You need to build up slowly in distance. You need to build up slowly in um, intensity. So speed, watching that. That's my thought. What do, what do you have to add to that, Lara? Really not much. Um, I would say whether it's, I mean, people get shin splints from walking, believe it or not. You know, it could be walking downhill. So like Kristen was saying, if, if you've got your body weight moving forward and you aren't, you don't have something that is balancing the, the, you know, downward pressure, it's going forward and down and your shin is it like, it's not very equipped for, for holding that center of mass back. So, uh, there's ways I, I think like when you're hiking, if you know, a lot of people will feel it in their uh, tibialis anterior because again, it's trying to decelerate. It can help sometimes if you actually lean back a little bit. And so you're taking that center mass back. So opposite when you're going into the hill, hiking up, you want to hinge into it, but sometimes walking with a little decent, I mean, I'm not talking a major lean back, but instead of like landing pound, uh, that can help. Everything else you said, Kristen, right? Look at where you're running on. I can't even tell you the number of people that I would see in the clinic. And they would tell me, and they had shin splints, and I'd be like, where are you running? And I, they would tell me, and I would just be like, it's concrete. You're running on concrete. No wonder you're, I mean, it's almost like it doesn't even matter if you have the best form. At some point, I think concrete is just going to feel pretty shitty on your, on your shins. So watch the surface area. It does matter because, uh, you know, you land, running is like, uh, it should almost feel like a kind of wheel. Like you land and spin and land and spin and it's forward. And that, that continuous motion of energy is helped 
or hindered by the type of surface you're landing on. So like a like I was walking in Telluride and I was and at my old wiring was like this is the perfect running path. It's like I immediately I just sense it. It's like this packed dirt that's just soft enough. It's not rigid. Uh, it's just it's beautiful. It's like you land and you and you just kind of you feel so light. So watch the surfaces if you're used to doing on concrete. What I would do is if I would run and there was nowhere to go that wasn't concrete, I would there's almost always grass next to the concrete. So I would I would run on that. It wasn't perfect. Sometimes it's a little bit, you know, tilted or something, but to me that was always better because um, I, I had never had a huge case of shin splints, but it was almost always when I ran on bad surfaces or a lot of downhill. Yeah. All right. Great question. You have another question from someone? I do. I do. This is from another one of our lit uh, teachers. Um, this is from Chia Wee Teo. She says, um, I have a regular student previously very active joining my class, a mixed level where, to, uh, where I do advanced beginner intermediate level. This was before COVID. Now we are back to a physical in-person class. And when she started, she felt uncomfortable. The reason being that she has scoliosis and stiffness around her sternum and back. Sometimes costochondritis. We get a lot of questions about costochondritis. She would go running when she's not joining my class. Then she would tell me she felt painful, stiff discomfort the next day when it was the day for my class. Hence, she was not able to come join. So her pain would occur after running. I tried doing lower intensity classes when she was around and she felt good and relieved after the session. So I knew that she needed to start slowly to build up the core strength again. Can you take a look at her x-ray and see if it's anything severe that she needs to refrain from doing like other activities? running or what type of class should I do more for her? This is what drives me nuts. Her physio is telling her to stop exercising for a oh few days. Gosh. From what I see, it's very mild scoliosis. I'm not sure what has been bothering her and causing all the stiffness and tightness. Um, she kind of goes on to say, we do all you know kinds of lit blueprints and sequences in class, which I don't think is too much for her. So I'm just going to show Laura, if you're on the um, you know, YouTube replay, you, you can see, you know, this is a significant scoliosis and mm -hmm. it's, it is, it is mainly in yeah. her T-spine. Um, yeah. So you see down, down low is pretty good. This yeah. is, this is an upper thoracic yeah. S curve. Yeah. Um, so well, really I, 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 her symptoms. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've worked with so many people with scoliosis, mild, major, like major, major, like really declined surgery, but would have been a really good candidate. And it was, you know, years later. And universally, moving is better. It just is. You have an imbalance that is already there. And I think the, I think this is again where unfortunately diagnoses have really gotten into the headspace and it's and it's affected thing it is it's recognizing there is you know it's just like somebody having a postural imbalance they can't do anything about and there is going to be some things that are not going to feel as good but to not move would is not the answer um so i also think from this the people who have had scoliosis that i've worked with the ones that were the most encouraged to move and felt the most encouraging in movement 
had the attitude that this was healing. And the ones who did not, even if it was milder, had come from a place where it was like scoliosis was this like, oh, you have scoliosis. You're, you know, and there's a lot of, I'm not saying it's not real. The feelings are not real. But the reality is that there's lots of diagnosis. Some people have, it, it, it's just work with what you have and know that there are imbalances, but not moving is not the answer. However, you want to move with people who kind of have an understanding that there's going to be some imbalances, some ways that you're turning and your ribs are going to be kind of stuck because the way the one side of your rib cage is going to be moved forward. That's the way the curve especially in the thoracic spine, it always impacts the rib cage. There's going to be one side of the ribs is usually projected more than the other. So rotating is going to feel not so great in one way and will feel much freer in another way. Um, opening up the, the back fascia, the side, in the way that you're able to, knowing again, one side lateral flexion into the T-spine is going to feel like you can't go anywhere. You don't push that, but you really work on strengthening the, the side that's very elongated and making more space as much as you can. There are going to be things that are just not going to look like, like an optimal plank or like whatever, it, but in that body, in the shape of the spine as it is, is good and working the core stability around that. I find most, the way we teach lit anyway is in asking people to go into in range of the motion or to use their arms to lever their thoracic spine so it's like moving as you can remember bones are not like brittle blocks they're not bricks they have some degree of the periosteum has a sponginess it's not spongy like connect like fascia but it, there it's not like it's stuck it isn't to say you're going to fix scoliosis, but you certainly can help some of that, um, the surrounding tissue become freer so the bone actually feels like it could move a little bit and make some. I've seen people, uh, especially when they are very committed, make some small changes that are very significant in how it feels functionally. Yeah. And I would say as a runner, you know, it, it sounds to me like the lit feels good unless she's in pain, like the lit yoga feels good unless she's in pain after running. So maybe suggesting to her client to do a little lit before she runs. She might be your average runner. We've all been there where we're like, oh, I'm going to set my alarm five o'clock. I'm going to get up. I'm going to hit the road. When you have something like a scoliosis or in anything, like you said, any diagnoses, but specifically this upper thoracic scoliosis, and you set out to do a cardiovascular regimen that by the way, also depending on, you know, what does her running style look like? How much trunk movement is she asking of a body that might be really stiff? So when she has this, this curve, it's, it's already putting a, a, um, a strain across, like you said, the ribs, which they are nice and flexible, but she's getting that costochondritis. If I'm wondering if Chia couldn't give her clients some things to do before she runs some yeah. of our reset she does a reset with some thoracic mobility some of the stuff Lara was saying and then go do her run and another thing she could try 
would be a run walk just to make sure that her breath stays you know level if she's that's what I do I, I and it'll vary if I know I'm going to be running with someone and we're going to be talking I'll run four minutes walk a minute just so I'm not you know and it but it you yeah. know for her especially when we know her target area of pain is this sternum let's keep her breath pattern a little bit more streamlined see if that doesn't help and then maybe have her check in what is happening it, during my gait, am I coming across the body? You know, am I really doing things with my arms? You guys couldn't see me. You're listening to me yeah. coming across the body with my arm. You know, can I, can I be a little bit more stacked with my, tr my trunk over my pelvis, maybe a slight forward lean, but, but not so much, you know, looking at how she's feeling while she's running, but I would not be surprised if she did a little lit. I love my favorite runs or when I do a lit reset and a sun one before I go, Mm, I'm like, yeah. I feel so good because I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and that's the thing again, like with, with these imbalances, structural, genetic, whatever, just giving yourself a, a, a better chance for success in the movement, meaning that you're going to not feel pain, that you're going to feel good. You're going to have energy. So yeah, that I, I love that you said that because I think a reset before that is perfect. I, I know people who do a reset before they play a you know, soccer game or something, and it's just something that gets your body better equipped. So we hope that helps. It always, as we always like to say, we're giving you responses based on information, but there's nothing like seeing somebody move. So uh, always have that in mind when we're when we're giving these responses that we, seeing bodies in motion tell us a lot more as well but we're kind of surmising based on our many years of experience <laughs> all right as always we love you thank you sister and thank you. if you have any thank questions you, you can always write us laura.hyman on instagram kb is kb yep. williams 99 or you can write into our support at lityoga.com. We always get those forwarded to us. Yay. All right. Love you, sister. And Love you too. we are pulling for you. 